Blog Talk Radio. Good morning, Margaret. Hi. Good morning. I've been talking about you. <laughs> I've been talking about you on mute. Um, I had listened to your TED Talk on the Huntsville, and oh. I was just, yes, and, and I was just sharing that, you know, I picked up some nuggets at 16 minutes, basically, but here today, you're free to flow as long as you would like to talk about however and present it however you want to present it. Um, For the most part, I was saying, you know, how you talked about wanting to be normal and wanting to um, feel as if you belonged and, and to fit in and then to say that this happened to someone who was a family friend who basically groomed you and then assaulted you and then moved away and you never really knew why they moved away. You just know that they moved away and at that point that stopped, but it didn't really stop because you were left with the after effect and holding that secret. And so I, I think that in society, because these things are repeated, you know, they they go way back. This isn't something new. It's unfortunate to be happening, still be happening, and to be happening in the way that the child has to bear the burden of what has happened. And often the adults go without being punished. And oftentimes we don't, you know, say that a child can speak up or be heard and then there's the statute of limitation, right? Right now we've got the the Epstein and, and the Cosby and, you know, all these kinds of things going on and the Giselle um, hearings and things of that nature, but still the, the justice is kind of narrowed. You know, it's kind of like the media, I don't know who's writing the script on who gets to tell their story and who doesn't get to tell their story. 
But from my perspective, when I, I watched the whole um, Epstein serial or whatever you want to call it on Netflix, and I know that there were not just girls, there were boys, uh, just based on what I was looking at, that were assaulted and abused during this time, and their voice hasn't been given. So my hope is that we can make it a human platform where anybody who has endured anything can be heard. That, that's my intent, is to make it about human beings, that it's not about gender, it's about human beings. And so you have managed to take your experience and bring it to a national level of attention and through the child advocacy and through our darkness to light, but also as a U.S a world Olympian, not just one time, you know, so it's like not just uh, a single event, but you have repeated that. And so I really thank you so much for being on the show with me today and it's 6 a.m. your time. So I really, you know, applaud the champion in you for waking up at 6 a.m. to do this. So I'm going to just turn the show over to you and please feel free to just share however you feel let's share. Yeah, I, I appreciate all of that. Thank you so much. Um, yeah, so I will just start off by um, telling my story and, and kind of what happened to me. And, um, yeah, and then I can kind of try to address some of the things that, that you just touched on as well. But um, so my name, again, is Margaret Holster, and um, I was abused from the ages of five to seven years old. And that happened by a good friend of mine's father. And so um, that's pretty standard. You know, it's, I think it's like 90% or something like that. It's a super high percentage of um, abuse typically happens by somebody the child knows. So I certainly fell into that uh, statistic. And um, this was somebody I knew. This was somebody I trusted. Um, this was somebody that I saw on a, a fairly regular basis. Um, and, you know, like I said, it was – was certainly not the the stranger danger, right? Like we that was something we learned very much in school in the eighties and I was very aware of what that was and, and this was not that in any way, shape or form. Um, my parents, you know, like most parents, you know, they wanted to teach me good manners. And so every single time um, they would send me out the door when I would go to a friend's house you know, they would always kind of say, mind so-and-so's parents, you know, like you would mind us, you know, and listen to what they say and respect them and, you know, do what they tell you, that kind of thing. And and they weren't, you know, telling me to do anything wrong, you know. Honestly, they, they probably just wanted me to, like, be invited back to this person's house again. Um, and so what, what they didn't realize is that they were kind of unknowingly setting up this situation where, you know, they were basically saying, like, do what this person says and automatically trust this person. Um, and so, you know, when you're a little kid, you're already, you know, kind of at a disadvantage because adults are pretty big and you're pretty small. It doesn't take a lot um, to kind of already look up to them. And then our entire lives, it's always kind of this repeated mantra of mind your manners, respect your elders, you know, listen to them, that type of thing. Um, and so, you know, when an adult talks to you, you, you just kind of sit back and you look at them and then you listen to what they say. 
And at that age, it never really occurs to you that, that they might not have, you know, pure intentions. You're always sort of thinking like, okay, well, this, this person is just, you don't even really think about it or you just assume that it's, it's honest. Um, so this, like I said, this was, this was a person that was coming over to my house regularly. I was going over to their house regularly. So whenever, um, you know, anyone would come over to my house, you know, my parents, for example, you know, we would be playing in the backyard or something and my, you know, my mom, especially, you know, she might be in the kitchen, like doing the dishes or something. And, you know, she would, you know, look out the window to make sure we you know, didn't like fall on our heads and kill ourselves. But, you know, she was always observing what we were doing. She was never like an active participant in what we were doing. Whereas when I would go to this friend's house, you know, my friend's dad, he was always an active participant in what we were doing. If we were climbing trees, he was climbing trees. If we were playing hide-and-go-seek, he was playing hide-and-go-seek. So the difference between him and my parents was, like I said, they were observers, whereas he was an active participant. So in my mind, this man was honestly a lot cooler than my parents, and he was a lot cooler than a lot of the other parents of, of any of my other friends. Because he was kind of like a big little kid, you know, um, and, and because of that, you know, he, he had access to a car and he had money. So, you know, when we wanted to go get ice cream, he had a way to go do that and he had a way to pay for it. You know, my parents, um, you know, would say things like, you, you know, you can't do that. It'll spoil your dinner. And this man never did that. Um, so there were just a lot of things there where, you know, this was someone I enjoyed being around. It was not a situation where I was running away, kicking and screaming, or I didn't want to be there or anything like that. So there was one particular day, um, and I always I always enjoy telling this story just because I think it, it talks about the process of grooming and, and setting that up really well. There was one particular day where I uh, we were playing hide-and-go-seek. And so, you know, my friend, I think, was, you know, speaking, and so I was hiding, and this man was hiding. And so he, you know, he pulls me aside. And he's like, you know, Margaret, I've I've got this great hiding spot, you know. And I was like, awesome, like that. That sounds fantastic, you know. I mean, obviously, you know, as an as an Olympian, I'm clearly not, you know, um, competitive at all. So, um, you know, so he he takes me around the outside of the house, and he takes me to the crawl space. And you know, the crawl space is is the the door to the crawl space is relatively small um and and you know it was kind of like it looked like a window panel um but it was a relatively small you know door to this crawl space and it was a relatively large house and so you know when you remove this door the the light that went into this crawl space just really did not illuminate particularly far and in no way, shape, or form am I thinking like, oh, hey, you know, the light does not go back very far into the scroll space. I'm not thinking any of that. So then on top of that, this man says, oh, yeah, you know, I, I found this frog earlier today, and I, I put this frog under the crawl space. And I was like, oh, my gosh, that is great. I love frogs. Um, so then I'm, like, all excited that I'm going to find this frog. And on top of that, I'm, you know, I'm going to win the game, you know, I mean, you know, not be found. I mean, gosh, for all I knew, I might never have been found again. Um, but, it, but, but, you know, basically all these red flags that I'm having telling this story and, and hopefully you as, as the person listening 
are having as you hear the story, none of that was happening. None of that was happening as, as a little kid, you know. Little kids don't have red flags in the same way that adults do, if at all, to be honest. And so, you know, I, I very happily went under this crawl space. Um, I was, like I said, I was not kicking and screaming. And, uh, you know, we go under there. And, and let's be honest, there was no frog, you know. And, and even if there had been a frog, I mean, what, you're going to find it hours later? I mean, that's, that's not going to happen. So, you know, I go under there. And, um, you know, that particular day, I got really, really lucky because nothing ended up happening. And I, I don't remember why. I don't remember if my friend found us or maybe he just got panicked or he was afraid we were going to get found. I, I am, honestly am not quite sure what happened there. But I, I have always remembered that. And I, I remembered that story because it, it just illustrates so perfectly how grooming works and how grooming, how easily it works. You know, and um, like I said, you know, if, 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 if pedophiles, if sex offenders were, you know, these, these Hannibal Lecter type characters, you know, um, they would not be particularly sex, you know, successful because they would be scary and we would all, you know, run away from them. But um, they're not like that. You know, they're, they're usually someone we know. They're someone we trust. Um, and, and that grooming process is essentially gaining your trust. And in the case of a child, it's, it's really not that hard to do. You know, you usually just kind of have to ask them, you know, what are they like? In my case, it was, you know, a frog. Um, and then obviously, you know, he knew I was an athlete and competitive and that kind of thing. And so winning a game, you know, kind of went along with And And there you go. He had some interest points. And then it was easy to kind of get me off on my own away from everybody. Um. You know, but one of the things about grooming that I think sometimes goes unnoticed is that grooming doesn't just happen to the child. It happens to everybody. It happens to the community. It happens to the family. You know, because especially with children, you know, you have to get access to a child. You can't, you know, just walk up to a child and, and, and unless it's your own child. You know, you, you don't just have access to children, right? Like, you have to have access you know, either through the parents or through, you know, um, the teachers, the, the coaches, you know, through the community somehow. And so these people, they're grooming lots of people. They're gaining a lot of people's trust. They're, they're gaining the trust of, of the caretakers, the adults, you know, and, and all those people around them. I mean, there's a reason why there's usually such an adverse reaction when once someone like this is caught. You know, a lot of times this person will be caught and, and the community will just have this outcry of, what? There's no way. You know, I, I knew this guy or this woman for 20 years. You know, we worked together. You know, we went to church together. Our, our kids, you know, hung out together. We had barbecues together, right? Like, like people have these adverse reactions because they themselves were groomed, even if they weren't abused right, they still were groomed because they're a part of that community or they maybe were a part of that, that victim's family. And so that's part of that reason of, like I said, of that adverse reaction. Um, and, and so these offenders, they're really good at, at what they do, to be honest. You know, they, they have to be. They, they wouldn't be so successful at offending, which is, you know, quite unfortunate. But, you know, that's, that's what that grooming process is. But I think, like I said, sometimes we just talk about it with, with the victim, but we don't always talk about 
you know, they're, they're really, they're doing it kind of with everybody. And so that's, that's how they get access, you know, to the kids. Um, so anyways, so my abuse went on for two years and at seven years old, I got really lucky and this offender moved. Um, I, again, I don't remember why they moved. Um, I don't know if he just got a different job somewhere else or, you know, what happened, but my abuse stopped because they moved. So it wasn't because of anything that I did or it wasn't because I told or anything like that. You know, it was, you know, just sheer geography. So I didn't tell anybody and I didn't tell anybody because this man had told me not to. So, you know, when you're a kid, you learn pretty early on in school that being a snitch is bad. And you learn that, you know, being trustworthy and, and being able to have, you know, a secret or, or hold a secret is, is good. And so this man had said not to tell anybody. And so I was like, wow, you know, this, this adult, you know, this person is trusting me with, with this secret, like that's cool. And so I didn't tell anybody. And you know, also as a child, I didn't fully understand that what he had done was wrong because, again, this was someone that I trusted. This was someone that I knew. And so I didn't fully connect the dots there that this was, you know, illegal or, or wrong. And so when he said not to tell anybody, it, it didn't occur to me that, that maybe that was a bad idea. So a couple of years go by. And, you know, I, again, I was, I was very lucky for several reasons in my story, but I was very lucky again, because we had sexual abuse education in schools and that would have been in 1994, which was so incredibly rare that they had sexual abuse education in my school. Um, And that was because the National Children's Advocacy Center, which I'll talk a little bit about more in a minute. Um, but the National Children's Advocacy Center is actually, you know, started in my hometown in Huntsville, Alabama. And so because that National Center was in my hometown, um, we had that abuse education in our school system. And, you know, even now, I mean, in, in today's age, so many years later, you know, there are still schools that don't have sexual abuse education. And, you know, it, it, it's something that, you know, Aaron Marin has been fighting for with Aaron's law to get, you know, all states to pass, you know, sexual abuse education. And um, I know there's some people out there trying to get, you know, federal, you know, get it passed federally. Um, but, yeah, there's, there's still a lot of places that don't have that yet. So I was so very, very lucky that I was able to have that again, you know, so many years ago. And um, at the time, you know, it was a series of videos. And so we watched this, these series of videos, and I remember getting really, really uncomfortable. And, you know, I didn't quite connect the dots just yet, but I think something was firing. You know, that, that uncomfortable feeling I was getting, something was firing, and I was just like, hmm, I don't know. So a couple of weeks later, you know, I, I think that those videos kind of got the ball rolling, even though they didn't force a disclosure immediately, they got the ball rolling. And so, you know, I was 11 years old at this point. So um, a friend of mine um, from school, you know, we were starting to talk about boys and that kind of thing. And we were walking around the block, um, you know, in my house and, for whatever reason, I decided to, to disclose to her and to tell her. And, you know, I remember her looking at me and saying, you know, Margaret, you know, I, I think you were molested. And, you know, that 
that right there just speaks to the importance of that sexual abuse education because she was in my class so she had seen the same videos that I had and you know molested is not a word in your average 11 year old everyday vocabulary you know I, I guarantee neither of us could have spelled it if you had asked us and the fact that she was able to identify what I told her and then accurately you know say back to me what it was was just absolutely incredible so you know that in and of itself, you know, just shows how incredibly important that sexual abuse education is, right? I mean, I think, you know, half the time, you know, you're going to, it's going to prompt disclosures from, you know, kids themselves. And I think the other half of the time, it's going to be, I mean, you're going to have kids like me, where they kind of mull on it, and then it's going to prompt disclosures, maybe at a later date to someone else, and a lot of times that someone else is going to be a peer, right? And you need those other kids to know what it is and, and to then know how to handle it. And she did, you know, she, she did exactly what she was supposed to do. She said, you know, you know, Margaret, you need to go home and tell your parents, which was basically you need to go home and tell a trusted adult. And in my case, because I was not abused by a parent, that, that trusted adult was my parents. So, you know, she told me this and I just kind of was like, yeah, you're right. I don't, I don't know. I don't know why I didn't think of that. <laughs> so I, uh, I went home that afternoon and um, my mom's first clue that something was off was um, should have been <laughs> the fact that it was this beautiful day outside. And I volunteered to help her. Um, she was putting up this border around her bedroom and I volunteered to help her. Um, so, you know, I'm volunteering to do what, like house chores on this like gorgeous day instead of playing outside. So she should have totally known something was up. And, uh, you know, this is the part where I always love to tell people, I'm like, all right, you know, it is so, so very important to tell. However, if you can maybe not, you know, disclose your abuse when your parents are like remodeling their house or something, doing something fairly permanent, my poor mother, for the next however many years that we lived in this house, you know, every time she looked at this border, like in her bedroom, you know, she's going to bed, like she would stare at it and think like, Oh, that's when my child told me she was abused. Um, so I maybe could have chosen my timing better, but, um, aside from that, you know, um, you know, so I, I offered to help my mom and for the next several hours, you know, cause this thing was really sick. It took forever to put up, my mom and I put this border up around her bedroom and, and I just, I told her everything that had happened. I told her my story and, and, you know, my mom was so great, you know, I mean, she just kind of nodded and, and said little cedar words like, uh-huh and okay and go on, what happened next? You know, but for the most part, she just didn't talk. She just listened, you know, <clears throat> those cedar words were mostly just so that I knew she was paying attention um, you know what I mean? And to keep me talking, but, but other than that, she didn't say much, you know, like I said, she just listened to, to what I was saying. Um, you know, and in hindsight, you know, I've, I've had numerous conversations with my mom and I'm like, how in the world did you know what to do or how to handle that? And she's like, I, I didn't. Um, and she's like, you know, I obviously recognize that what you were telling me was, was very important. And she's like, and I, I knew immediately that it was, it was true and it was real because, it, you know, you would never lie about something like that. And the, and the, the amount of detail that you had, you know, for, for someone that age. 
Um, but she said, mostly, I just, I was afraid that you would clam up again and you wouldn't talk about it. And so she's like, I wanted you to get it all out kind of in one take so that if, if you, you didn't talk about it again, you know, I would at least know kind of what had happened. You know, and I, I just look back at that, and I think that's just so incredible that she kind of had the, the, the wherewithal to do that. Um, so we, you know, I ended up, you know, telling my mom my story. And then, you know, after, you know, kind of dropping that bomb and, you know, ruining her day, I think I went off and, you know, continued playing or something like that. Um, and then, you know, the next couple things, so I, I have an older sister, so her, my older sister and my dad were out and about, I don't know where they were, but they weren't home. And so, you know, I guess next they, um, my mom actually was the one that told my dad and then they were kind of like, Oh God, what do we do? And so they actually sat my sister down first to make sure that it hadn't happened to her because my sister had done some babysitting for this particular family. And so they wanted to make sure that they were only dealing with one child, not two. And then luckily that was the case. Um, and then really from there, it was sort of like, okay, how do we handle this? What happens next? And so, you know, like many parents, you know, who don't know what to do, um, they called 911. They called the police. And, um, you know, the police sent two detectives out to the house. And, you know, my mom was the one who ended up talking to them. Um, I don't know where I was at this point. I think my sister was, like, keeping me occupied so that I didn't kind of know what was going on. Because um, I, I did not see this part of the process. But my parents um, ended up telling the police kind of what had happened at this point. And so, you know, they kind of, you know, and, and they all believed me, or at least my story right away, um, which was amazing. And so they kind of said, okay, you know, you're going to call the National Children's Advocacy Center, and this is what's going to happen. These are going to be kind of the next steps. And they, they were able to outline kind of a basic, you know, this is where we go with this. Um, so, you know, my mom and I went to the advocacy center, I want to say, like, the next day. I mean, it was, it was you know, not a very long time after that. And, you know, the hardest part of that entire process was walking in the front door. You know, I remember sitting in the parking lot for like 30 or 45 minutes before going in because I was so terrified that someone was going to, the advocacy center in those days, it was like in this little house on a residential street. And, you know, I mean, it was not like this, this you know, it was not, not a business area with lots of people or anything. So, I mean, the fact that we were sitting across the street and I'm like, I don't know, worried someone's going to walk their dog or something like further down the street and see me, I don't know. Um, but we sat there for such a long time until I felt comfortable, you know, and, and was ready, you know, and uh, clearly had checked both sides of the street, you know, 800 times to make sure no one was walking their dog. And then, um, you know, then we went inside. And then honestly, after that, it really was not a, a scary or traumatic process. Um, one of the things advocacy centers do so well is they, you know, they, they try to make it, you know, seamless. They try to make it not scary. And, and, and they're really good at playing that to different ages. Um, you know, I was still fairly young at 11 years old, um, but advocacy centers see kids from 18 and under. So, you know, they're, they're used to dealing with different ages. Um, and then, you know, kind of the whole motto of what an advocacy center does is their, their whole goal is to have the child only tell their story once. Now, 
you know, if you end up going to court, you know, you'll have to tell your story again in court. So, you know, there's kind of one caveat there. But with that one exception, you know, the goal is that you're not getting re-victimized over and over and over again by having to tell your story, you know, umpteen different times to however many different people. And so that was kind of how they formed, you know, um, I think I want to say it was 1985 was when the very first one in my hometown started. Um, and the and the goal was really just that, you know, we're the adults, you know, we can work behind scenes and talk to each other and, and tell each other what happened. The child doesn't need to keep continuing to do that. So in those days, in 1994, everything was audio taped. You know, now obviously the technology has changed, you know, significantly. And so now everything's videotaped. Um, but, you know, things like that have changed, you know, obviously the technology and, and you know, things like that. Um, but the concept is still the same. You know, they have this multidisciplinary team um, where they kind of put everybody, you know, all these different, you know, cogs of this wheel under one roof. So they, they work with the police, the detectives, they work with the DA's office. They have forensic interviewers, medical examiners, um, psychologists. Oh, gosh, I'm, I'm sure I'm forgetting somebody. But, you know, they have all these different people um, that you kind of go through the process and you see. And like I said, they just put all those people kind of under one roof that work together so that you're not having to retell your story. And, and that also you're not having to go outsource and find those people. They kind of line them up for you and, and help you make those appointments and, and help you see them. Um, you know, advocacy centers across the country are sometimes set up a little bit differently. A lot of times they are literally under one roof. Sometimes, you know, you know, you might have to go to a hospital or something to see the, the medical examiner or, you know, something like that. Um, you know, but they still have those connections and they still work with them. And so they're going to help you find those providers. It, you know, again, it's not you having to come up with it and figure out where you're supposed to go. So, you know, it was really just such a seamless process and, and something that I was so scared going into. And then it, it really was not this, this scary traumatic process. And so, it, you know, again, talking to my mom um, after the fact, you know, because it's been very interesting as an adult kind of going back and talking to her through her process and what she was thinking and how she handled it, you know. And, you know, my mom kind of describes it as, as a parent, you know, you want to feel like you're the drivers in the driver's seat, you know, with your kids. And, and you're teaching them, you know, morals and you're teaching them, you know, this or that. But, you know, you kind of want to be a little bit in charge of, like, what you're teaching them and what they're learning and that kind of thing. And she said this was the first time, you know, that she really didn't want to be in the driver's seat. And, and you know, not only did she not want to be driving the car, you know, she didn't know where the car was going or, or anything. And so she really almost needed somebody to kind of parent her because she was just so clueless about how this process went. And she was so discombobulated because it was, you know, it was so traumatic to her as well. And so, you know, my, my mom's name is Elizabeth and, you know, there there was somebody at the advocacy center that, you know, I mean, my mom is, is, you know, trying to not come unglued because, you know, she doesn't want me to see that. Right. She's going to be strong for me. And I remember, like she said, you know, that this, this, she was speaking with someone and they kind of said, you know, okay, Elizabeth, like you're going to go home tonight. You're going to cook dinner. 
you know, and it's, it's all going to be okay. And, and my mom was like, you know, I just, I needed to hear that. I needed to hear what is the next thing? Like, what are these basic steps? Like, how do I take this 11 year old girl and like get her back to normal? And and she said she was just kind of so overwhelmed and literally like hearing like, I'm going to go home and cook dinner. Okay. Like she kind of just needed to hear that. Right. And, and so really, like I said, like the work that they do is just so incredible because it's, it is for the kids, but it also, it really is for that entire family of, of kind of helping put a family back together. Um, so that was kind of my story, you know, for the most part as a kid, I went through counseling for a year as, as a kid. And then, um, I actually went back to counseling later as an adult. Um, my counselor actually had said when I was, so I was 11, my counselor had told me, she didn't tell me, but she told my mom, um, that I actually would probably want to go back to counseling at some point when I was an adult, you know, when I started dating and becoming sexually active, that kind of thing. And she was absolutely right. Um, I went back to counseling at 23 years old and, you know, it was one of those things that I had been thinking about doing for a while and just kind of like, ah, you know, I'll get around to it. And then, you know, there was one very specific moment where I was like, okay, I need to go back to counseling. Like it's time. Um, you know, and I, I think that's kind of how it is. I think, you know, we, we don't get around to things and, until we do. And then when we prioritize it, when we decide something needs to be done and we prioritize it because it becomes important to us. So, you know, um, I, I went back to counseling for a couple of years as an adult, you know, because you start, you know, you start dealing with some, some different issues, obviously, and, and dating was, was certainly one of them. Um, I had started swimming, you know, in this process and had, had started to become a successful athlete. I'd been swimming that entire time, but, you know, obviously when you're, you're younger, it's just age group swimming. And then, um, you know, as I started to get older and, and like I said, growing and getting faster, that type of thing, um, you know, there were, there were some things there were just dealing with confidence and, you know, how did that it in I think with my my background and um, a lot of that kind of like I said it all kind of came to a head when I was 23 and you know I think there's some interesting things there you know um, one of the things with abuse that you know I think it's it's pretty widespread information that a lot of times you know people will turn to drugs or alcohol or they have these negative you know coping mechanisms you know whatever they are and I didn't have a lot of the traditional negative coping mechanisms, at least on the outside. And so, you know, from that standpoint, I think people are like, oh, you know, well, she's fine. Um, I mean, not, not that at that age a lot of people knew about my story because they didn't because I hadn't told very many people. But, you know, for, for you know, all purposes, by and large, I, I more or less looked fine on the outside. And, you know, I think one of the things that, not talked about as much is overachieving and you know that that probably sounds funny just to say it like that but you know when you overachieve you know society says well that's a good thing you know you're 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 being successful you're you're doing these things you're not doing these harmful actions um but it really depends on on what the motivation is and what is motivating you or driving you to be successful 
And a lot of what was motivating me and what was driving me was not coming from a healthy place. So a lot of athletes, you know, I think especially at a really elite level, they like to to be better than other people. They like to, you know, feel like they're at an elite level. Um, And so if the normal person is starting off at zero, you know, they want to be at a 10 or 15, you know, right off the get-go. Well, I never felt like I was starting at a higher level or, or that I was at a higher level, I always kind of felt like if the normal person's at zero, then I must be starting off in a negative somehow. And so I was always in my mind so far below people and so far beneath people that I just felt like I had this, like I always call it the pit of despair, but, you know, I just felt like I, I had this, this emptiness inside that I was constantly throwing accomplishments you know, into, because I didn't feel good about myself. And so, you know, I was, you know, like I said, I was a two-time Olympian. I was a medalist. You know, I I broke a world record. I had straight A's in school. You know, I I was a perfectionist in literally everything. And so I just kept throwing accomplishment after accomplishment after accomplishment into this this black hole because I I didn't feel good about myself. And, And that. You know, I was doing that because I couldn't walk into a room and, and feel like I deserved to be there, right? Like, I didn't feel like these other people around me, you know, I just didn't feel like I measured up, which, think about, um, but that was kind of what my logic was, and that was kind of how warped my logic was. And so I think sometimes, like I said, the overachieving, it, it's it's not talked about as much, you know, and, I, you know, I honestly have no idea how you would study that because, it, you know, I, I don't even know what you would do. I mean, I, I guess you could do like a survey or something, but, you know, it, I, it's something I've started talking about in the last several years. And it's fascinating because I've had several people, you know, it, it speeches or whatnot say, oh, my gosh, like you hit the nail on the head with that. You know, I was the first person in my family to go to college or to get a master's degree or you know, whatever the case is, and, and they do it because they didn't feel good about themselves. You know, so I think there is a large uh, portion of people out there um, that don't necessarily react in the traditional negative ways, but are still not necessarily behaving healthily, um, you know, because what I was doing wasn't healthy. It just, it looked good on the outside. It looked all shiny and new, but it was all banged up and tarnished, you know, on the inside. Um you know, so I, I think that's kind of one of those things that is always important to, to point out that, you know, everybody does handle things differently. There is no one size fits all, is, is, you know, obvious. Um, but, yeah, you got to kind of have to keep your eyes open because, you know, sometimes the kids that look the most successful and, you know, you think everything is great, you know, they're just they're really good at hiding it. You know, now the flip side to all of that, and, you know, I can't say it was all bad, was that, you know, somewhere in my late teens, I think, I didn't figure this out probably till I was 24, 25 years old, but I think somewhere in my late teens, you know, in my competitions when I was racing, I had started looking around my competitors and thinking, and, you know, I'd be in a race or before the race would start. And I would think, you know, I'm, I'm tougher than all these other girls, you know, like what have they been through? You know, what have they lived through? You know, I I mean, and I didn't know what they'd lived through. Maybe they had lived through the same thing I had lived through, but in my mind, these were kind of the mental games I would play with myself and the things I would tell myself. 
And, you know, I didn't really realize I was doing that. And then, like I said, several years later, I kind of picked up on that. And I realized that that was something that I was doing. And I actually think that that's something really powerful and really strong. And that's something that other communities do a really great job of. Um, I especially, you know, think the cancer community is amazing at that. You know, um, I look at breast cancer survivors and, and testicular cancer survivors, and, you know, they are so proud to just survive. And, you know, they've got their months and their colors and their wristbands. And, I mean, the month of, of October, like, you cannot escape the color pink. It is everywhere, you know. And, I mean, people are just so proud of that. They're proud that they survived it or they're proud that they have a family member or a friend that survived it. And it's like everybody's in pink, you know. And, and like I said, testicular cancer, they've got their yellow and and so, you know, I think other communities do a really good job of embracing this idea of being a survivor um, and being proud of that. And, you know, the analogy I kind of use there is, you know, my grandmother had breast cancer in um, like 1958, 1960, something like that. And, you know, she passed away a few years ago at 90 years old. But to her dying day, you know, she would not have been caught dead in a pink T-shirt or with a pink, you know, ribbon on her bumper sticker because, you know, in the late 50s, early 60s, you did not talk about your breast, period, good, bad, indifferent. You did not talk about it. That was not polite dinner conversation. And so, you know, she survived it. She moved on, and then she didn't talk about it. Um, and, and so I, you know, I kind of think that even though the time moved on, you know, she didn't. And so in my mind, you know, I, I kind of feel like the sexual abuse world is, is sort of still stuck in the 50s, you know, like we, we have this idea that we survived this thing and then we're just like not supposed to tell anybody and talk about it. And, and, and I just think that that's something that, you know, our community as a whole, um, you know, I, we have a color, it, you know, it, it's blue or teal, you know, and um, April was our month, so it, it just ended yesterday. But, um, you know, I, I want to get to the point where when we get to April, I mean, you see blue and teal everywhere, you know, and it's on the airlines and it's on, you know, cans of soup. And, you know, I'm trying to think of all the places I see pink and I literally see it everywhere. But, um, you know, I, I think that that's something that, that is a great goal, Um, But more importantly, you know, I I think it's something that survivors themselves, you know, should be able to look inward and say, you know, I I really did survive something. And I I really am such a strong person. You know, I mean, it's it's certainly not something that anybody asked for, you know, and and I very intentionally use the word victim and the word survivor when I speak, um, because I think that word victim, you know, it's taking back the word victim, if you will. Um, You know, and the reason I do that is because we, you know, we were victimized. It was not something that we asked to have happen, right? It was something that happened to us. And, you know, because you did not ask for this to happen, that by definition is victimization. And so to me, there's nothing wrong with saying I was a victim. Yes, that happened. And part of the process in my mind of becoming a survivor is acknowledging that victimhood and going, okay, I want to become a survivor, right? And there's no, 
there's no one thing that makes you a survivor. I just think it's, it's mostly that decision that you want to be a survivor. And then it's, it's starting that process of healing. And that process looks different for everybody, you know, and it, it's never like over. It's never like this finalized, like you, you reach this magical thing one day and you're there. You know, I think it's, it's kind of a continuing journey, um, you know, and it's going to be harder in the beginning. And then obviously it gets a little bit easier, you know, but I, I think to me that's, that, that process of going from victim to survivor is, is very, very important, but it's very empowering. And so that's something that I, I think our community can, can do a better job of. But also, you know, I, I think survivors, because there, there unfortunately are a lot of us out there, you know, men and women, and, and I think that that's something that, that we can be proud of instead of being ashamed or, or just feeling like we can't talk about it at all one way or the other, you know. It's not something that you have to talk about by any means, you know, certainly not on a public stage, but, you know, at, at least on a private one, you know, um, at least there should be people in your inner circle that you feel comfortable and safe talking with because um, it's, it's a lot, you know, it's a lot to keep inside. And, and, and I certainly don't think that that's healthy. And, and I am a huge advocate of getting professional help, having done it twice in my life um, for several years at a time. So I cannot say enough positive things about getting professional help. Um, but yeah, I mean, at a minimum, you know, like I said, have those, those close people that, that you feel safe with and trust in your inner circle, whether those are family or friends or, you know, whoever they are, you know, but I definitely think there should be people in everyone's life, you know, that they feel comfortable talking to. And then, you know, like I said, like, you know, I, I guess I'm going to close, close it up here, but, um, you know, I think the biggest thing is I, I always like to try to leave people with some words of hope that you know being sexually abused it's it's like a road bump it's a particularly large road bump if you will um but it still is just a road bump and I very much genuinely believe that that whatever a person's goals are that they can be successful and that they can be happy you know, someone's, some people's goals are, are going to be going to the Olympics or being a CEO, right? Or, or maybe it's just having a happy marriage and a happy relationship, right? Whatever those goals are, I very much believe that those are possible. And, you know, I think that, like I said, it's the end goal is never, you know, with, with becoming a survivor. It's, it's, it's never, you're never going to get to this, this point of saying, you know, I never think about it or it doesn't bother me in any way, shape or form. I think the goal is, you know, again, I clearly love analogies here, but you know, everybody at some point has been in a relationship. And if you're in your car, you know, listening to the radio, you might hear a song on the radio one day. And that makes you think of, you know, this person you dated, let's say, you know, 15, 20 years ago. Well, okay. For the three minutes that this song is playing, you might feel happiness, sadness, anger, you know, I mean, you, you might feel all of those at the same time, you know, I mean, you might feel this whole plethora of emotions while you think about this person. And, and if the breakup was yesterday, okay, it's probably going to be a little more intensive a feeling, you know, 20 years from now, it's probably going to be a little more mellow, um, but that doesn't mean that you're not still going to think of this person. 
But I think the goal in my mind is that, okay, you listen to the song, you hear it for three minutes, you allow yourself to experience that emotion, whatever it is, and then the radio changes and the next song comes on and you sing along to that song and go along with that song, right? And you don't fall into this, like, you know, three-day depression, three-week depression, three-month, three-year Right, you just kind of you you allow yourself to feel whatever you're feeling for that three minutes, and then the song changes, and then you you move on with your day, right? Because everybody's going to have triggers, everyone's going to have flashbacks, everyone's going to have these moments where it pops up, you know. And and I don't think the goal is to squash it down again and to never think about it. I think the goal is to acknowledge it, but acknowledge it in a healthy way and go, okay, you know, this is what I'm feeling. And then, and then you move on and, and you do whatever it was that you were, you know, maybe planning on doing anyways. Um, you know, and, and, and again, that's obviously easier said than done. Um, you know, and everyone's going to have, you know, good days and bad days, that type of thing. Um, but to me, that has always been the end goal. You know, it, it, it's not like a, I'm done. You know, it, it's just getting to a healthier place, if that makes sense. So, anyways, um, I've been talking forever, I feel like, but I really appreciate um, anybody listening. And, um, yeah, thank you guys so much. Margaret, um, you have brought me to tears, and I've been in the background trying to keep my composure. (laughs) Uh, So I was like, okay, don't come on the air sobbing and crying. Um, There were so many things that you said that I really would like to go back over with you. And so we're coming up on like seven minutes left in the show. (laughs) But the one thing that I want to point out to the audience is the one thing that um, she was saying towards the end is that allow yourself the time and the space um, to deal with whatever has happened to you. Don't let someone else tell you that um, you have a set time and a set limit. You know, obviously you don't want to become unhealthy in it, but at the same time, my, my analogy is like a Pez dispenser. It's like one pops up and you eat that and you deal with that one until the next one pops up, right? So I want to thank you for being on the show and being a part of it. And I'd like to invite you back um, so that we can go through it some more because you have a lot more to share. And uh, I really wish that you would come back um, when you have time. So Yeah. Absolutely. I appreciate that. That's awesome. So I'll reach back out to you and we can continue this. But for now, I know you need to go to your appointment. And thank you so much. Thank you so very, very much. And I wish you every success. Oh, absolutely. Thank you. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Okay. Bye. Bye Bye-bye. Shining on the heart 